Well, I did my first and so far only marathon in June of 2004. Uh, I trained hard for this. In fact, the training was not easy. I battled over injuries. I battled um, overtraining, and I had to spend a ton of time in the pool and a ton of time on the bike because I my I might look like a runner, but my body was not working in the right ways. But I knew I needed to put in the hours so that I didn't hit the wall. Uh, the wall is this imaginary, real. Uh, barrier between miles 16 and 22, or more acutely between 18 and 20 usually, where the body just breaks down. And the reason, if you want to know the philosophical reason, is because the glycogens, the, food, the energy sources in your muscles have been used up, and so the body has to go look for energy in other, other places, usually like fat storage sites. Sites. And you might be thinking, well, that's great because I'd like to lose a few, so I just have to start working out, hit the wall, and then I can start doing the fat storage site breakdown thing, except that the energy that your body needs to break down the fat sites into actual energy is very inefficient, and it makes your body work really hard, which makes your body want to stop running. So... I trained, and I felt ready even through those injuries, and I have to tell you, if you've never done it, there is something rather magical, maybe even euphoric, about standing with thousands of people 26.2 miles from a, a finish line of all ages, sizes, shapes, everything, and hearing the gun go off and then running along right next to the largest body of water in North America for all of that time. It is truly amazing. And I have to tell you, when I hit the three-mile marker and stopped to get water, I'm like, this is amazing. I love it. And when I hit the six-mile, I'm like, I'm doing great. I'm under an hour. And then I hit the nine and the 12 and the 13.1. And I'm like, I'm under, I'm under two hours. It's, we're already halfway. And then at 15, I'm like, ooh, I feel like something's like funny in my ankle. And then at mile 16 or 17, I'm like, ah, I think my stomach's starting to hurt. And then at mile like nine, uh, I, I, I sense the four-hour pace group coming up on me, but not there yet. And then mile 20, they passed me. And then at like mile 20 and a half, like I had to go up this very strong uh, brick, like paved road that was deaf. I don't know what the street was called, but it was called death in my book. And every, like I just stopped. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I want my mom. This is that fun. Uh, and the only reason that I started running again, and when I, I use running very gingerly, like this hobble jog thing, is because it hurt more to walk than it did to run. I made sure to smile when I crossed the finish line so people would think I was having fun. There were thousands of people cheering. But I hit the wall so hard that to this day, I don't know if I will ever do that again. Now, I know that we're not all runners in the room, but the reason I share that story is because though we all might not hit walls running, we will hit walls spiritually in our life and in our faith. And we need to know what they are 
and why we need to go through them. What they are and why we need to go through them. And you'll be like, that does not sound fun. Why would I absolutely need to go through that? I'm going to tell you why. Because the longer I walk with God and the more walls I hit, the more I realize that spiritual walls are not like marathons. We can't just power through them. Some of us will hit spiritual walls so hard that the only way we're going to get through is if we let God walk us through. So that's where we're going. So what is a wall spiritually? A wall is a crisis or a circumstance that's beyond our control. That's what it usually is. It's a crisis or circumstance beyond our control. So this isn't like trials or general challenges. Trials are like traffic jams. They're like teachers that give you like the grade that you didn't deserve. They're like coaches who are treating you unfairly. They're like annoying bosses or delayed airplane departures or even your neighbor's dog barking at three in the morning and waking you up. These are annoying things. They're frustrating things, but they are trials. They are not walls. Walls are season-ending or career-ending injuries. Walls are failing all the classes in your major and wondering if you should keep going. Walls are these seismic events that turn our worlds inside out and upside down. Divorce, death of a friend or a family member, Uh, a cancer diagnosis, especially in a young person, unexplained job loss. These are walls. Infertility, serious car accidents, disillusioning church experiences. You know it's a wall if you have more questions than answers, if the way in which you used to practice your faith isn't working, and if you don't know where God is, you don't know what he's doing, you don't know where you're going, and you don't know when it's gonna be over then it's a wall. I feel like in many cases, this COVID-19 epidemic has been a wall. It's transformed the food and hospitality industry. It's changed the education world. It's changed how churches work. I've had to wrestle with walls as what does it mean to be a pastor in the midst of that? And in some people would think, I don't know when it's going to be over. So that's walls. But Actually, almost two, well, the first edition was over two decades ago. There were these two authors, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich, and they actually wrote a book called The Critical Journey. I remember reading it in my mid-20s and thinking, like, this sounds really boring. Um, And, uh, like, these people just don't get, like, how to be successful at following Jesus. So I read it, and I thought, and now I'm like, oh, where's that book? So... The reason that I bring it up and that we're going to take this little scenic tour of these stages is that actually, as they describe the spiritual life as a journey of change and growth, they include a wall. And this is where so many of us get stuck. And many of us in our church experience, in our faith experience, we don't have a framework for walls, so we don't know what to do when we hit them. So that's why I want to spend just a few minutes here. So... The first journey, according to these two authors, is stage one. This is the life, um, this is this life-changing awareness of God. This happens maybe as an adult, maybe as a child, but you all of a sudden realize who Jesus is, what he's done, and how we need to have his mercy in our life, and we begin to seek him. 
in our faith. So then we move to stage two. This stage is um, a life of discipleship. We are now Jesus students. We are learning. We are um, in spiritual community with others. We are getting rooted in our faith. We're practicing things. We're praying. We're reading the Bible. Um, and that is a good stage. And then it moves to this active life. Stage three, we move from being a student to being a servant, and we start doing for God. We are actively working for him and with him. We're bringing our unique talents and gifts into the world. We're taking responsibility for that. It is exciting to do this stage. Um, and Many believers, side note, many people who believe and follow Jesus spend decades in stage two or stage three, and it's great. But eventually, <laughs> there's a stage four that's called the inward journey or the wall. Sometimes the wall we hit the wall and it drives us to the inward journey. Occasionally, the inward journey drives us to the wall. But again, this circumstance or crisis that's beyond our control hits us, or maybe just the serving and the sacrifice of being with Jesus over and over and over for months and years, you just get worn out. You get exhausted. You get emptied. It takes its toll. Like people come to know Jesus, they're excited, they love him, they figure out that he loves them and they wanna partner with God. They start serving and sacrificing in these beautiful ways. They get involved usually in a church. They feel excitement over doing something bigger than themselves, sacred, spiritual, and, and they jump into it. And maybe because of some emotional unhealth or the fear of missing out, or um, just the busyness of life. As they go and go and go, all of a sudden, all of a sudden they get disillusioned or worn out or upset. All of a sudden conflicts start arising, problems surface, uh, frustration comes from within or without and the joy is gone, like sucked dry. And in those moments, we get stuck. And you know that you're there when you realize, I can't get past this on my own. But if you can journey with God through it, there is something beautiful on the other side. These authors describe it as the journey outward. I call it mission friends, where Jesus says in John 15, 5, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. I want you to bring much fruit into the world. We're gonna do this mission together. And so all of a sudden, the things that you used to do in stage three, you start to do again, whether it's serving or leading or compassion or mercy or justice or evangelism, but you do it from this beautiful, quiet center, from this place where you're united with the Holy Spirit, living out of his overflow, and all of a sudden, the things that were burdensome aren't burdensome anymore. You have this understanding of God's deep abiding acceptance and profound love for you. You live out of the living water. And, and some make it to stage six, which sounds really beautiful. I just don't know if I've ever been there before. They call it transformed into love, where you realize there's not a lot I have to carry anymore because I trust that God is gonna send people and experiences and events and resources into my life 
when I need them at that moment. It's the uh, second, first Peter one, in his divine power, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's, it's believing that God's perfect love drives out fear. And so I don't live in fear anymore. I live in God's perfect love. And I am able to live that out towards others. So there is something beautiful about making it to the other side of the wall, but I want to spend the rest of our time on the wall because it's where so many of us get stuck and stay stuck for a long time. And for that, we go to Genesis 32 that Garrett read. Now, in many ways, Genesis 32 is the culmination of Jacob's life. Jacob, if you don't know, Jacob was the son of Isaac and Rebekah and, and the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah weren't just the founders of the Christian faith, but the, the Jewish faith and the Muslim faith as well. These are the big, big people in the story of God. And so... Uh, Jacob is a twin brother. Esau is his twin brother. Esau and Jacob, um, when their parents named them, they picked it because of some peculiar circumstances. Uh, Esau came out red and hairy, and Esau means red in Hebrew, so they're like, oh, we'll call him red. And then uh, it says that his brother was grabbing his heel as he came out second which I think just sounds strange and super painful, but Jacob in, in Hebrew means heel. can also mean supplanter or deceiver. So imagine growing up like my brother's red and hairy and I'm the one who's called deceiver or heel. I don't know, maybe heel's a good thing, maybe it's not a good thing, but this is how they grew up. But before they grew up, when they were in the womb, Rebecca noticed that, hey, these twins are wrestling around. They're always like, there's always this tension going on. And so she decides to do a really smart thing. She asks God about it. She prays and says, God, what's happening here? And God says, these two babies, these two sons that you're going to have are going to grow up and become great nations, each of them, but the older one will serve the younger one. So even though Esau is the firstborn, no, even though Esau was born first, Jacob is going to be the firstborn because apparently God can decide who the firstborn is, no matter who's born first. And we see that when they grow up, because there's this moment where Esau is this hunter. He goes out and he catches food, but he has to cook the food and prepare the food. And he's starving and his brothers just made food. And so he's like, oh, I want some of your soup. And so his brother's like, huh, that's interesting. Like, there's an opportunity here. Well, I'll sell you the soup for your birthright. And he's like, what good is the birthright if I'm dead? And so he's like, okay, uh, sure, I'll take the soup. And the very rarely does this do this in the Bible, but occasionally it does, and it's super important. It says, the narrator says, Esau despised his birthright. So as these two men, boys, and then men are growing up, we're finding out how they are, how they see the world. And one of them thinks that the birthright, which is different than the blessing, but not that different, thinks that it's not a big deal. So we know this, and then comes time for the father, and it's, at this time, it's got to be the father to give the blessing. 
So the boys have grown up. They're 40 years old. They're grown men. And usually the father brings in, the godly father that's walking with God brings in all the sons and then gives the firstborn blessing to usually, but not always, the firstborn. And then they get a double inheritance, not because he loves them more or she loves them more, but because they're going to take care of the family members. And so it says in the story that Isaac, the father, only brings in Esau, not both sons. And he says, go catch some food and I will give you the blessing. Rebecca overhears this, and I fully believe, 100% believe, that because Rebecca has talked to God, has heard from God, that she has told Isaac what God had said to her because she can't give the blessing. So here's this situation where God has said, Jacob is going to be the firstborn, but Isaac wants to make Esau the one who's the firstborn. And the text tells us very carefully that Isaac... It says in in the Hebrew, like his eyes are growing dim. Like Isaac can't see, which is supposed to make us go, hmm, in what ways can't he see? And if we wanted to be here till like seven or eight o'clock, we could talk about the ways that, that Isaac is a whole lot like Jacob. Like they like to stay at home with their mom in the tents and make food. But Isaac's older brother, Ishmael, that got sent away, he's a whole lot like Esau. And Isaac was technically the secondborn of Abraham, firstborn of Sarah, and the one who God said is the firstborn. And Isaac can't see that or won't see it, right? Because we all know there are things that we sometimes choose to not see. And so there's this story in Genesis 27 where Rebecca overhears Isaac's words to Esau. And so she comes up with this plan and she tells Jacob, you're going to go and catch food um, and you're going to, you're going to go, you're not going to catch food. You're a farmer. You're going to go pick the flock, bring two young goats. I'm going to prepare them. And then you're going to bring it to your dad and we're going to dress you up like your brother. And then you're going to ask for the blessing. And Jacob says, Jacob, remember, heal, deceiver. He goes, what if my father touches me and realizes that I'm trying to deceive him? Then he could give me a curse, not a blessing. And Rebecca says, no, 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 let the blessing, let the curse fall on me. Rebecca's being the godly adult in this situation. Jacob goes along. Now we have to ask ourselves, is Jacob a deceiver? Remember last week, Amy talked about being set free from the power of the past, both personally and generationally. And so there's this question in Jacob's mind, am I this deceiver? And so his mom tells him to go flee to her brother. He goes and lives there for 20 years with his brother's family. And he himself is deceived. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Can you tell I like it? And... So Jacob is deceived not only into marrying the wrong woman, I do, oh, like you're not the right person, but into having his wages changed 10 times and having his uncle deceive him out of these flocks and out of his livelihood. 
And I wonder, I just wonder if those are trials along the way that are supposed to refine Jacob's character and faith. And after 20 years, he realizes God made a promise to me and it was back in the land of my parents. And I have to go back if I'm gonna claim that future. But he knows going back means being set free from the power of the past, which means confronting his brother Esau. And so he sets out and he puts half his family in this camp, half his family in this camp, thinking that if my brother is still mad at me, he will come and kill half my family and at least I might have the other half. That is like scared out of your mind thinking. And then he puts all his servants across. He, oh, first he prepares this giant offering worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And he sends that ahead. Then he sends his servants ahead. Then he sends his family ahead. And then he does something strange. He stays at this river, this river Jabbok. Did you catch that? It's no coincidence that in Hebrew, Jabbok means emptying. He's alone at this river being emptied. This is Jacob's wall. He may have had other walls before this, but this is his big one. This is where Jacob is wrestling with God to the point that this revelation of God touches his hip and blows it out of his socket. This is where he sees God face to face and doesn't die. This is where with humility and exhaustion begs for a blessing. In this moment, Jacob is magnificently defeated and yet he's holding on tenaciously. I won't let you go until you bless me. And the reason we went through all of that lead up is for us to go, when was the last time Jacob asked to be blessed? It was with his father. And what did his father say? Who are you, my son? What is your name? Oh, um, I am Esau, your firstborn. The last time Jacob asked for a blessing, he lied about who he was. I wonder, I just wonder how many of us want to ask God for a blessing, but are lying about who we are. Maybe this is your wall too. Is Jacob this deceiver? Is this his whole life? No, in that moment, he's able to say, I am Jacob. It is a beautiful moment. Even if it means you end up with a limp for the rest of your life for you to know who you are and stand strong regardless of that. And in that moment, Jacob becomes Israel, one who wrestles with God and with humans and is able, who can still stand. He might walk with a limp for the rest of his life, but he can still 
stand. He knows who he is. And in that moment, he not only gets a new name, he gets a renewed future. And not only does he walk with a limp for the rest of his life, but as he walks through this river, this wall in his faith, he now sees with greater clarity. He trusts God with a greater dependency. He has the sinful and selfish parts of his life more pulled and sifted away because he's gone through this wall. And when it's time for him as the father with 12 sons to choose the firstborn, We could spend hours here. He does not waver. He goes, that one, Joseph, he's the firstborn. And he puts a fancy coat on him, even though it causes hatred among the other sons. He will not do what his father wouldn't do. And at the end of his life, because he's been faithful, not perfect, but faithful, all the sons, and I'm sorry, it's just a patriarchal society, so I think it would be all the children. If you're a lady, you are not being left out right now. But he brings them all in, all of them, and even their children, and he gives them each a blessing, yet still gives a firstborn blessing, but does so in front of all them because he has walked through the wall. So, Why do we need to go through them? Well, in case you didn't pick up some of what we might be able to pick up from Jacob, I think we need to go through the walls because everyone hits them. I know it's kind of a weak reason, but it's just a reality. Everyone hits a wall. And there's not just one wall that we go through and graduate from and like we get a badge. We get to keep going through walls because it's part of our ongoing process to refine our character, to become the people that God already sees us as, and he's the magnificent, mysterious, eternal God, and so he knows better than we know. So we have to go through them, Uh, or we have to hit them. We have to choose to go through them. But the second reason that we have to go through them is because at the wall, sin and selfishness and barriers that we build up between our will and God's will get taken down. See, all of us, as we grow, as we mature, as we become more independent, which is a somewhat a beautiful thing, we all have the tendency to have our will go this way, but God's will go this way. Going through walls isn't emptying. There's always something to surrender at the walls. Maybe it's your need to be magnificent or great. Maybe it's a perfection. Maybe it's a pleasing of other people. You might be able to ask God, what is something that you need to surrender? Jacob empties himself of his possessions, his family, his servants, and wrestles with God because I believe he knew there were some identities and some relationships and some emotions and some possessions that he needed to surrender, that he might have been holding on too tightly to. I think that's a question that we might want to reflect on as well. What identities or relationships or emotions, or possessions are you holding too tightly? Obviously, this is a series about emotions, so they're good, they inform us, but walls keep us from worshiping those emotions.
All right. Um, Third, we need to go through walls because they take us to new places of healing and dependency and trusting God. When we walk through the walls, uh, these ways that we like to be in control. Okay, I'll just speak for me. I like control. How many is Rob? I like control. I like to know where I'm going, what I'm doing, what God is doing, and what I need to do next all the time. One of the ways I'm trying to surrender is to continually admit that God is not an object that I can control or command or master. God is an ultimate magnificent being that is knowable yet utterly unknowable. He is inside of me and yet completely outside of me and wholly different from me. He is not my co-pilot. If you have that bumper sticker, I'm gonna come and take a Sharpie to it. It's not your co-pilot. When we go through the wall, we can rest more easily and trust more deeply because God is more worthy of our trust as we go through this. And lastly, we, can, we need to go through the walls because, and this is probably my favorite one, we get new revelations of who God is that can only be experienced at the wall. When Jacob comes through the wall, he names the Jabbok River and the region around it Penuel or Penuel. It means I've seen God face to face and I didn't die. Facing God. When Abraham's servant wife, Hagar, who had Ishmael that we mentioned briefly, when Sarah sent her away and she was in the desert, this wilderness, and she thought she was gonna die, She came to a place called Shur, which by the way in Hebrew means wall. And God speaks to her and gives her a hope and a future. And guess what? She says, God is El Roy, this God who sees me. New revelation of God. When uh, Abraham is told to offer his son, his only son, the son he loves, Isaac, on a mountain that God will show him, he doesn't hesitate. He goes and does it. And in the moment where God sees clearly that God's will and his will are not in conflict, he provides a ram, not a lamb because a lamb is for a son, but a ram for the adult, for Abraham, because this was Abraham's test. Abraham says, you are Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Yira, this God who provides revelation after revelation after revelation. And it continues into the New Testament. Jesus is with the disciples in this little boat. And even though these are fishermen, they think they're gonna die. And in one word, Jesus stops the wind and the waves. And they say, who is this? They're getting new revelation of God time after time after time. The walls are where your image, your perception of God, my perception of God are broken down. You might be putting God in a box and he wants to blow up the box because he can't be contained in a box. We see how sovereign and mighty and good and gracious and loving he is. This is why we need to go through the walls because we are gonna hit them, but we don't have to get stuck at them. We might need to learn new ways to wait, to pray, to obey, to trust, to be faithful when everything wants us to quit and run. But it's not about our strength. It's about his strength. The Holy Spirit who began a good work in you will complete it if we stay in. And Jesus is not just our savior. He's also our example. 
Because when he faced the enormous wall of the cross, he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. He was able to go through the cross, committing himself to God's spirit because his eyes were not focused on the cross. They were focused on the joy beyond the cross. In a marathon analogy, he wasn't focused on the finish line. He's focused on the joy beyond the finish line. Some of you need to start looking beyond where you're at just like Jesus did for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us consider him who endured such opposition. So what opposition are you facing? As the band comes up, as we transition to communion, I wanna just give you some questions. Isaac's eyes were growing dim. He couldn't see well. Where are you looking? No judgment. Where are you looking? No, some of you are looking at the hardships and you're missing the miracles. This isn't to downplay where you're at or what you're experiencing. You're just focused on the hardships and you're missing the miracles. So rather than looking at what you've lost or where you lack, Will you look at what you have and what you've learned? Where's your focus? And then what of these four reasons do you need to hang on to this week? Which one is most helpful to you today? I'm gonna transition our time of communion with just a few seconds of silence, and then we'll, we'll partake of communion together. even and especially at our walls. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He is slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He does not constantly accuse us, nor will he remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve for his unfailing love towards us and towards all who fear him is as great as the heights of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west.